So welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the Cadre Journal. I'm, I'm Joseph and Fadia, if you'd like to begin by introducing yourself and letting folks know about your work. Um, thank you so much, Joseph. Uh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. My name is Fadia. I'm a PhD candidate in Southeast Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm researching anti-colonial resistance in Malaya. I'm focusing on the colonial construction of uh, race in particular. So yeah, happy to be here. Awesome, thank you so much. And, and I'm excited for this conversation because I read your review in Liberated Text, uh, which is an excellent review. People should definitely check it out. The review of uh, Chin Peng's My Side of History. Um, and so we can begin by discussing this central figure uh, in Malaysian history who I think few outside of, of Malaysia will really know about his life and, and his contributions. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start with a detail from your review of the text where you discussed uh, his reflections on his upbringing and on his pedagogy, which I thought was really mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, he was discussing learning about China in primary school um, mm -hmm. from textbooks that were printed in that country, but were heavily censored by the British administration. They were removing words like imperialist, imperialism, aggression, invasion, um, and ripping whole pages out of the textbooks. Mm -hmm. But he was able to organize study groups to discuss subjects like uh, China and the history of Malaysia as well. That, um, and, and I think, as you mentioned as well, what's really interesting is to even discuss the subject of race, which the British mm -hmm. administration did not allow him to. So can you provide a bit of of background to this figure, who was he and how did his upbringing in Malaysia in the specific conditions of Malaysia affect his political career? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think that is a very important question because to a lot of Malaysians, uh, Chin Peng remains a controversial figure up until today. Uh, even, you know, recently he, he died, you know, um, not a long time ago, actually, where a lot of people didn't know much about him. Even for me in school, I didn't learn at all about Chinpeng, but I knew that the state kept calling him a terrorist. Uh, that's all that we know, I think, for a lot of Malaysians. And of course, you know, that has a lot to do with anti-Chinese racism, which is intrinsically linked to anti-communism, and also this whole process of racialization that was taking place in Malaya at that time, and also, you know, later in Malaysia after 1963. So Chin Peng, uh, it's very interesting, you know, to look at his life because he grew up in a heavily segregated country called Malaya at that time. And because of that, you know, he, I think he was paying a lot of attention, even as a child, you know, he was like seven, eight years old when he started learning about what was going on around the world, about the revolutions around the world. And because of the schooling and also because of the kind of exposure that he got at that time, he started paying attention to the things that were happening around him, for example, the ill treatment that a lot of Indian laborers were subjected to at that time. So he was somehow radicalized by that, you know, by seeing all these indentured laborers getting homeless, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're not given decent wages, that kind of stuff. So that radicalized him. And also when he was in school, when he was seven or eight years old, you know, he started reading 
things that were translated into Chinese. I think translation was also something that was very important at that time. So he was getting access to a lot of books from even the Soviet Union at that time. You know, he started reading about revolutions around the world. He started reading about anti-colonial struggles and that really helped him understand the conditions in Malaya at that time, even though he was not getting the kind of access you know at that time because of censorship because of segregation but it's very very intriguing even for me you know, to, to look at how he got his consciousness and how he used that consciousness to be part of a struggle that was so important at that time yeah absolutely and and i think from his education his exposure to the british narrative of history you go on to discuss a little bit about his introduction to different revolutionary figures, his reading of mm -hmm. Mao and his interest in joining Mao's army rather than joining the, the Guomindang, which I thought was a very uh, interesting aspect that he initially wanted to join the Guomindang and changed his mind when exposed to Mao. Uh, yeah. But can you discuss a little bit more about his emergence into politics and the broader political and social context that's emerging? So he's a young man in the 1930s and 40s. He joins mm -hmm. the, the CPM. Uh, at 16. First, maybe yeah. we can talk about the CPM itself, a little bit more of its history as well, its role in the anti-Japanese uh, resistance during World War II oh as well, uh, and how that would play a role later on when the British would reoccupy uh, Malaya. Mm -hmm. So the CPM was formed in 1930. I think it's uh, very important for us to also highlight the fact that it was Ho Chi Minh who was instrumental in founding uh, the, the party. So Ho Chi Minh used to come to Malaya and spent time with a lot of radicals at that time in Malaya talking about forming a party, you know, to, to really seriously talk about revolutionary struggle. And uh, at that time, Jinping was 16 years old, where he decided to join the party. He left his family because his family had a different plan for him. So they wanted him to go and study and become someone who would be successful in life and not embark on this kind of journey. So he just left without telling his family. And then his mom was frantically looking for him. And then he got some friends, you know, trying to like comfort the mom, saying that, you know, he's fine and he's going to come back and talk to you, you know, he's going to be okay. And then the mom somehow gave her blessings and told him that, I just hope that you, you know, you don't get arrested. <laughs> so he said that, I promise I won't get arrested. And somehow he managed to. Um, escaped that you know he was you know, on numerous occasions they tried to assassinate him but he managed to escape that truly remarkable I think you know like reading his story and how um, he you know at 16 he decided to join the CPM and I think it's also important to point the fact that at that time there was a severe crackdown in Singapore and Malaya because Singapore and Malaya were not separated uh, as they are now right so because of the crackdown you know despite the crackdown he made that decision at 16 years old to dedicate his life to his country and also to everyone in the world because he believes that the struggle is is global right so yeah absolutely and and reading about the party in the 1940s and it becomes, as you discuss in the in your review, it becomes the largest resistance force on, you know, in Malaya against the Japanese occupation. The British yeah. legitimize it, uh, give it weapons, help it sort of, you know, mobilize it in order to mm -hmm. resist the Japanese. But then 
as you discuss, you know, when there is a reoccupation of Malaya by the British Empire, by a naval fleet uh, coming in mm-hmm. and reoccupying the people who, in Chin Peng's case, they had given the order of the British Empire to now have a bounty placed on their head uh, for, you know, for this desire to continue the war um, and know with, you know, throughout the resistance to the Japanese that the British will come back and they have to continue fighting all, all foreign uh, aggressors. So you discuss a little bit about the conditions and setting the stage for the people's uprising um, in the 1950s. And one of the interesting aspects you focus on is during the reoccupation, some of the, the measures that the British put into place, the devaluation of the Japanese currency that created massive social unrest, hunger, poverty. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about what the CPM is doing at this time, what Jinping is doing as the British are beginning to reoccupy the island and they're making plans for how their resistance to British imperialism will continue. So the CPM um, and Jinping, of course, he was leading the party at that time. So they were on the ground, organizing the people, uh, forming people's committees, you know, to get women, youth, men, workers to, to be a part of this movement where they would demand independence and also uh, demand that the horrible conditions that they found themselves in uh, to be ended at that time. So because of the mobilization, you know, like in Singapore, of course, because of their influence and Singapore was more active in terms of organizing, but because of what was going on in Singapore, Malaya also somehow got that same spirit and started organizing themselves like people in Malaya. So it showed how powerful and how compelling the CPM was at that time. And also it's very interesting because the CPM at that time, because I'm also trying to understand you know, the dynamic between the CPM and also other radicals in Malaya, because uh, the dominant narrative often says that the CPM is dominated by the Chinese, again, yeah, anti-Chinese racism. And, you know, that a lot of the Malays who are also Muslim are against them. But if you look at historical facts, you know, you can see how um, the communists, Jinping, for example, they were closely working with Malayan radicals who identify as Islamists, as nationalists. Uh, they were working with all these groups together, and that's why the British got really upset and started declaring what they call the emergency in 1948. It was because of the uprising at that time. And of course, you know, by calling it the emergency, they were masking this fact that it was uh, an anti-insurgency war meant to crack down on any opposition to colonial rule. So yeah, it's very interesting to see how, you know, people were mobilized at that time. They were starving and yet they were out there organizing, demanding their rights. There were a lot of strikes going on, you know, not just to demand their rights, not just to demand, you know, uh, you know that their humanity is given back to them, but also to demand, you know, um, uh, for example, you know, they, 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 there were a lot of direct actions uh, by dock workers, for example, saying that, you know, we're not gonna, gonna load all these weapons onto ships meant to kill our brothers and sisters in Indonesia, you know, in Vietnam. So that that is really inspiring. And that is something that is very understudied because of the fact that 
everyone, I think not just in Malaysia, but also in the Imperial Court in Britain, they keep saying that British rule was benevolent and uh, you know, they, they managed to rule by winning the hearts and minds of the locals. So this is how they, they, they hide the fact that there was this brutal war that was ongoing from 1948 up to 1960 in Malaya and Singapore at that time. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, and I find it really fascinating you pointed out in the review that even what they were calling the emergency and using that misnomer, as you put it, uh, when they write the, when Western historians write the history of uh, the so-called emergency, they begin their accounts with the killing of three British planters um, yeah. in 1948. And you, and in discussing Chin Peng's book, you, you bring up the fact that this completely neglects three years earlier when British troops were attacking large demonstrations of tens of thousands of unarmed people, killing protesters, peaceful protesters. And you, you make it clear that the move to armed resistance against the British is a result of British imperialism. It's not yeah. something that just comes out of nowhere um, with yeah. killing planters. Although you do mention mm -hmm. as well that the planters were, were horrible, you know, and, and using armored cars. And so it was in, in many ways yeah. justified to have this resistance, but the British were the ones who were killing peaceful protesters. And through yeah. that action, they spark off the people's uprising. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, during the uprising, they have clear instructions not to use the term insurgent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in this review, you also talk quite a lot about, in addition to their starting the insurgency by murdering peaceful protesters, the mm -hmm. tactics of the British throughout uh, throughout the war are using Agent Orange, buying it yeah. in the millions, uh, employing concentration camps, um, just horrible brutality against the people of Malaya and Singapore. And I wonder if, if we can discuss a little bit about mm -hmm. these horrible tactics, including, I think, infamously, as you as you point out, uh, the mutilation of bodies um, and yeah. the display of, of heads, which is, I think, just one of the deepest and most gory and brutal aspects mm -hmm. of anti-communist imperialist history that few people are really aware about um, of, of just how brutal the British were in Malaya. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that policy in particular, um, you know, it's 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 very disturbing to, to read about the kind of atrocities committed by Britain at that time. And um, even, you know, there are a lot of people trying to highlight, you know, the kind of war crime that British committed uh, against their enemies, right? And then, they were trying so hard to cover it up, but somehow, you know, like one soldier who was posing, you know, he was photographed holding two heads uh, of his enemies. And then he somehow, somebody managed to contact him and he admitted to having committed that act. And then, you know, and later it was uh, discovered that there was legal advice issued to the Admiralty saying that that amounted to war crime. And yet, you know, nobody did anything. They tried to justify such acts and continued with the policy. And it's it's very uh, interesting because the, the man that was in charge of that uh, policy was appointed by Winston Churchill at that time. So this is you know, the kind of violence and atrocity that doesn't get talked about uh, today, you know, when we talk about Britain, you know, if, as, as you can see recently with the death of Queen Elizabeth, 
you see academics on Twitter glorifying the empire, not even trying to problematize, you know, that kind of statement. It's it's very disturbing, I would say, because it the 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 narrative that the British was benevolent, that the British, you know, won the hearts and minds of Malayan people, you know, like the NHS was built partly on the backs of colonized Malayans. It's it's just for me, it's very disturbing, and it also shows how, you know, people just don't care about what happened to people in the third world. You know, they don't even care about learning their own history. So it, we can still see that, you know, today, and it's very heartbreaking, I would say. Absolutely, and I think that yeah. is one of the best aspects of your review is kind of pointing out that this is not just a story about um, you know the British the British counterinsurgency and and the horrible imperialist tactics that they used, but it's a story about resistance and what people did to fight back to reclaim their humanity, their agency. So I want to talk a little bit more about Xi Peng and what he's doing during this time, how he's organizing the people, and how he ends up in exile. Uh, you talk a little bit about his exile period as well as he's banished from the country. He's declared public enemy number one by the British Empire, um, which is a, a, a sort of a, a prize of honor uh, in this situation to be marked as the as the enemy by the British Empire. But how he's navigating uh, the crises that are emerging um, first in Malaya, and then once Malaysia becomes uh, independent, you talk about the Comprador mm -hmm. class, and now there's a struggle against neocolonialism as well. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how he was navigating these challenges. Yeah, um, Malaya gained its independence in 1957, and the war that the British waged against Malayan insurgents continued up until 1960. And that was also, I think, that time is very important for us to talk about because, you know, Indonesia was trying to defend the revolution at that time. And we have many states in Borneo, for example, Brunei, you know, there was this uprising that the British tried to crack down. So they were so afraid that what was happening in Indonesia would spread to Malaya, to Borneo. And that's why they came up with this idea to merge Malaya and Singapore and also North Borneo uh, and also Brunei at that time, basically to say that, you know, this place, this region, uh, we're not going to let communism take place. So, uh, of course, you know, Jinping, even though independence was declared in 1957, he understood that that was not a genuine um, freedom. So that was not genuine independence. So he continued to 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 with the armed struggle and of course you know he got banished by the government that that was ruling at that time and they were closely collaborating with the british you know to crack down on the communists not just the communists but also malayan radicals for example nationalists uh all groups uh who you know that that were organizing at that time so Peng ended up in thailand so uh, so he was organizing from there. So he was very, uh, he was working closely with uh, communists in Thailand, also in Vietnam. So he went to China. So he went to meet Ho Chi Minh at that time, you know, trying to talk about, you know, what do we do about this region, right? About Southeast Asia, because obviously, you know, that the imperialists are now uniting to make sure that communism will never take place in this part of the world. And, 
after that, I think in the 80s, um, the, Malay the Malaysian government said that, okay, all right, no, um, we're going to sign this agreement with the MTP, provided that, you know, they um, agreed that they won't carry on with the armed struggle because in the 80s, you know, a lot of things have changed and all that with the, uh, yeah, and Chinpeng somehow was not allowed to return to Malaysia and he was living in Thailand until the day he died. And before he died, he actually filed a court case, you know, uh, basically trying to get court to recognize his status as Malaysian, as Malayan, and then, you know, in, after 1963 as Malaysian. And the court rejected his application. So the court basically said that you are not Malaysian, you are not entitled to Malaysian citizenship or nationality. And so that's why he died a stateless alien in Thailand. Even, you know, after he died, the government prohibited his ashes from being returned to Malaysia because that, that was also, you know, a big part of, uh, ritual where you know his family would would receive the ashes and then they would do you know a kind of ceremony to to, to basically celebrate his life and also you know mark his death um so it just shows how anti-communism is really strong uh and how it is still used until today to to discredit or to delegitimize any form of resistance that uh that is revolutionary. So that's why I think it's also important for us to talk about how, you know, Southeast Asia, um, yeah, Southeast Asia is, is a place that we don't talk about enough, you know, when it comes to anti-communism, but you can see, you know, the, the, the formation of Malaysia itself is basically trying to fortify imperialist interests, you know, and also to, to perpetually crack down on revolutionary movements. So, yeah. And I'm really fascinated by the discussion throughout in, in reading a little bit about the history of the region. Mm -hmm. I think the interconnectedness of the struggles in Vietnam and in Indonesia uh, and in Malaysia as well. You have all these large communist struggles going on at roughly the same time. And you're, you know, throughout discussing the relation with Ho Chi Minh. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious how to a degree the counterinsurgency plan, you know, when we were discussing with the British during the, the first emergency, um, mm -hmm. Their use of Agent Orange, which is something that I think a lot of people yeah. associate with the American war, uh, the imperialist war in Vietnam. And I, I think it's fascinating to also see how there's a sharing of tactics among imperial powers to coordinate uh, resistance. Of course, people are, are also a bit familiar, I think, with the, the anti-communist genocide in, in Indonesia uh, in the mm -hmm. 60s as well, backed by the United States, instigated by it. And I'm, I'm curious to what degree... Chinpeng was sort of fighting alone for a long time, leading his movement. Um, to what degree there were divisions within the communist world too about whether to mm -hmm. support. I know, you know, there are a lot of um, mm -hmm. dissenting factions with respect to Vietnam and, uh, and, and Malaysia as well, and how he was able to navigate the tensions at the time to try and get the maximum support for his struggle um, between the, the different interests in China, the different interests in Vietnam and the Soviet Union. It was really hard for him. Uh, so he discussed this in his autobiography. He said how, you know, in uh, the 40s and the 50s, he got some support from China, for example. So he sent some of his comrades to China to get training, you know, to 
to, to learn about the revolution there. And then uh, in the 70s and then in the 80s, right? Because um, I think a lot of things were changing in the region at that time. And, you know, a lot of people told him that, you know, maybe it's time for us to, you know, work on diplomacy instead of on struggle. So he was not really happy with that. But at the same time, he was not really getting a lot of support because of the changes that were uh, taking place at that time. So, you know, he that's why he uh, agreed to talk to the Malaysian government and sign that peace agreement in Thailand. So basically saying that, okay, all right, the armed struggle, you know, ends here. So now we're just going to talk about what's, you know, what's going to happen next. Uh, so that was in the 80s, very, very recent, I would say. And also because I think of what, what happened in Indonesia, the massacres, right, against communists and communist sympathizers, and that really affected the revolutionary movement in Malaya because a lot of Malayan radicals, not just the communists, they were very close with um, communists and also radicals in Indonesia. And because they wanted to merge with Indonesia, that's why you know the British felt the need to push um, the right-wing government to quickly talk about merging Malaysia and Singapore and also Brunei because they wanted to isolate uh, Indonesia at that time. They, this was happening in the 60s and then the massacres took place in 1965. So a lot of violent events took place around that time. So Chinpeng was caught up in that and he was still in the jungle also trying to, to, to sustain you know, that, that movement. It was really hard for him and um, yeah, I, but but he said that he never regretted what he did, and yeah, um, yeah, it's just I think for us, you know, how do we move forward, right? How do we use this history? How do we use this um, historical fact that we're learning today to move forward and think about the different world that we want to build together? Yeah. And, and that, I think, is the last subject I would want to discuss a little bit, which is the legacy of uh, the insurgencies in Malaysian history. How are they thought about in schools today? You mentioned, of course, that Jinping was never able to return and still to this day is, is called a terrorist. And there's, so there's clearly even still an educational imperialism of, you know, teaching students that this is someone not to look up to. Um, but in addition, there's obviously, of course, just like in Vietnam and Indonesia as well, the legacy of whether it's the use of Agent Orange or uh, the new villages, which was, as you point out, the misnomer for, for concentration camps, um, what they were being used in, in the counterinsurgency. So I'm curious how society today reflects about this period and also what it can tell us about, uh, as you mentioned at the end of the article, the ongoing struggle against neocolonialism, how even teaching people about this history is a method of struggling against neocolonialism. Exactly. You know, it's it's really hard because, you know, the state is very much capitalistic. I mean, the system that we live under is still capitalism, right? So everything is controlled by the state. Even narratives around our own history are controlled by the state. And these are ruling ideas, right? So they're very dominant in society. And um, even for Indonesia, you know, it's very interesting because I, I went to Indonesia recently and because of that event, right, the massacres that happened in 1965, you know, 
a lot of people have forgotten about you know the revolutionary struggle that happened before 65. Um, you know, a lot of people were still talking about Suharto and how good he was as a leader. So I was like, you know, they managed to gain their independence in 1947. Malaya, you know, like 10 years after, you know, even that, you know, we didn't get genuine independence from the British because of neocolonialism and all that. And, you know, the forgetting, I think, uh, historical silences and how all these things are deeply rooted in our system is something that I think that we need to talk about more. Uh, of course, you know, it's, it's, people are more receptive these days, I think, you know, because I think if I were to write this review five years ago, I think I would be getting a lot of death threats. I, I got some death threats before for talking about communism, for talking about anti-communal struggle in general in Malaysia, death threats. I was uh, questioned by the police for, 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 for even talking about anti-colonial struggle in Malaysia because everything, even if you're not talking about the communists, you're like, you're talking about the communists. You know, this, that's how bad anti-communism is in Malaysia. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's really preventing people from understanding their own history. That's why they cannot imagine something beyond liberal democracy. They cannot imagine something beyond electoralism because for them, you know, what's wrong with our country? You know, it's, it's the politicians that are bad, you know, the systems are fine, but because they couldn't understand that the systems are pretty much the same, you know, decolonization, uh, was not complete, you know, in 1957, and it's still not complete today. So, um, yeah, to get people to understand that is really a struggle because this is not part of the mainstream narrative. This is not part because there there are not a lot of people who are also working on this because you know you see a lot of works on Malaysian history. You see how you know people still perpetuate anti-communist sentiment and you know that that is really making it hard you know for you to talk about it freely and get people to to start thinking about why it is important for us to talk about this erased history yeah well thank you so much and and just from what you were just saying I mean the hearing the repression that you faced uh is horrible to hear but you know I think the work you're doing is really amazing and I know so many people uh, you know, appreciate the work you're doing and bringing this history back to light. I personally, I don't think I would know much about this history unless I had read your review. So I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for, for joining to discuss it a little bit more. And just before you go, if you can tell folks a little bit more about where they can find your work, anything you're working on now that people can read and, and check out. Yeah. Um. Thanks again for uh, having me on the show. Um, people can check out my Twitter. Uh, I'm quite active on Twitter, even though Elon Musk is trying to destroy it now. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it's time that we talked about how we organize ourselves, right? Beyond Twitter. Definitely. I think that's the most important thing that needs to happen because real change doesn't take place on Twitter. Of course, it's a medium, but at the same time, you know, like it's not sustainable, right? Because they're Definitely. all not interested in amplifying voices like ours uh yeah, yeah my my twitter is still there so i'll be sharing my <laughs> on my twitter uh yeah 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 awesome well thank you so much i really really appreciate this discussion i learned a lot um and thank you and take care see you yeah you too bye bye thank you so much bye.
Thanks. Bye.